Well, uh, if you've been with us for any period of time, you'll know that in the last few months, we've been going through a series on the book of Galatians entitled The Urgency of Grace. And the question in this series that's come up time and again, um, well, what comes up in the letter to Galatians time and again, is Paul addressing uh, a, a particular kind of problem that emerged in the ancient church and that emerges uh, in every era that's followed, including in our own the tendency for us to make our salvation about the things that we do rather than about the thing that God has done, the great thing that God has done in Christ, this gospel, this announcement of good news, that God has done everything needed for salvation so that our salvation, our forgiveness, life lived in the presence and grace of God is obtained only by grace through faith. And not according to what we've done. So this theme is going to be continued this morning. uh, But we've got a, um, uh, well, well, you didn't know it, but you stumbled in on kind of a special Sunday here. Because this Sunday we're going to hear for the first time from Tarek George. And you can come on up, Tarek. Uh, Tarek and Kathy moved back to Toronto, uh, I believe August sometime. And uh, Tarek has taken on the role here of disciple, or sorry, uh, director of family discipleship. That's what it is, and uh, has been in that role since the fall. So this is going to be his first sermon here, which means we're going to give him um, uh, the kind extension of no Q and A following his service. So if you want to ask questions following the service, I'm sure he'll be happy to meet you uh, following. So. Um, Before you get started, we're going to turn our attention to the reading of the passage, Galatians chapter 5, and here to help us with that, Jenny. Today's reading comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Is this on? Great. Well, good morning. My name is Tar George. As Lyndon mentioned, I'm the Director of Family Discipleship here at Grace Toronto Church. 
So it's my privilege and honor to speak with you today. Uh, this is indeed my first time preaching here at this church. Uh, I know first impressions really matter, so I'm personally excited to talk about circumcision for the next 30 minutes. Uh, Dan's not here, I'm not sure, but I think this is a test. We'll see how we do. Uh, this is a hard passage, but we believe that it is part of God's word, and we're going to get into that today. But before we do that, would you join in praying with me and for me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. Uh, we ask that you would come now by your spirit, that you would give us a spirit of understanding, that we would not just listen to this word, but we would long to be changed by it. Lord, wherever we come, uh, wherever we are in our journey of faith, we ask that we would be able to encounter you in this passage and that you would meet us by your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Well, I understand that uh, the movie Frozen 2 just came out. I won't give away any spoilers for that. But in the first movie, uh, one of the main characters, Elsa, has the magical ability to turn things into ice. Uh, She has been taught from her earliest years to hide it, conceal it, lest the world around her finds out and begins to fear and hate her. And one of the title songs, which you probably know and are going to be singing for the rest of this service, I imagine, she says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through no right, no wrong. No rules for me, I am free. I think this isn't a snapshot of what the majority of our Western culture assumes that freedom is. In fact, the National Geographic did a series of interviews in 2017 to ask people of the Western world what they thought freedom was. And here's what they found. Freedom means liberating yourself from other people's expectations, living without fear, being yourself, doing what your heart wants, living without limitations, rules, or consequences, and being happy in your own skin. In short, they found that freedom to our Western culture is something that we have the power to seize by sheer determination or force of will. It's the idea that you trying harder, thinking differently, or trying all that you can to shut the haters out will somehow free you more to be you. And one of the starting claims of the Christian faith is that there is an important freedom, maybe the most important freedom, that cannot be achieved in this way. And the Apostle Paul here has a timely word on freedom for the church in Galatia and also for us living in the fast-paced city of Toronto. See, Paul has over this series been arguing that there's only one way to be saved, and that is by grace through faith in Jesus. We are not to be slaves trying to appease God with our works, but we are free because God is pleased with our faith. And after much dense theological debate, Paul wants to tell us how we ought to stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. And so this is the theme of this passage that Paul is getting into. How do you stand firm in the freedom of the gospel? First, by knowing what you are freed from. Second, by knowing what you are freed by. And finally, by knowing what you are freed for. Knowing what you are freed from, knowing what you are freed by, and knowing what you are freed for. Know what you are freed from. Well, Paul is writing to a group of people called the Galatians on a particular topic, which is circumcision. Now, for most of us, circumcision is not the most pressing theological or philosophical question of our time that we grapple with, but it was for Paul's original audience. In fact, Acts 13 records how Paul is being confronted by a group of Jewish converts, Judaizers, who teach that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You must keep the law of Moses. 
And so Paul here in this passage has to address this teaching about circumcision, but we have to understand that in this context, circumcision really represented something larger than what it quite literally was. And by zooming in on circumcision, Paul is actually putting a magnifying glass up to a much larger issue, namely the human tendency we all have to identify ourselves as morally good and upright people based on what we do or what we don't do. Now, why circumcision? Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision among the males was to be a sign to people that they belong to God's covenant, that he and, uh, the person, he and his family are recipients of God's grace and salvation through faith. It was to be an outward sign that mirrored the inner faith and trust that a person had in God for salvation. But faith in God was always what saved you. And the Judaizers of Paul's day are saying, well, no, you, you, you really need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Jay, just imagine if that's what you went through this morning. <laughs> that wouldn't be very pleasant. But you see, Paul understands that circumcision was never anything in itself. It was always meant to point forward to something and remind God's people of an inward reality. In fact, in his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, uh, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. What Paul is saying here is that circumcision of your body alone makes no difference to God. There's no difference between how God sees a Jew or a Gentile, a religious person or an irreligious person. If you rely on your performance or your works, including circumcision, to get into God's good graces, you have profoundly missed the point of the gospel. Circumcision, even in the Old Testament, never entitled you to God's love and favor. Rather, God's love and favor entitled you to circumcision. It was intended as a result of God's commitment to you, never a means to earn that commitment. And Paul here is saying that by accepting circumcision, you are saying that you accept everything else that the Jewish law entails. And you are saying that you can and will live your life perfectly according to God's holy standard called the law. And Paul has already established that no one can do that because of sin. No one is capable of living a perfectly good and upright life. Now, if you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith, uh, you should know that this is one of our tenets, that all people fail to use their actions, words, and thoughts in the right way. Sin affects how we see ourselves, but also how we see others, and most especially, how we see God. We regularly fail to meet our own expectations and the expectations of others. I know I do. How on earth could we possibly meet the expectations and standards of a holy God? Paul says we can't. And all this talk about circumcision should not cloud the facts for us. Paul warns them that to accept circumcision means they accept the following. That faith, what you believe, plus works, what you do for God, is what earns you your right standing and salvation before God. And Paul says, no, that is not the gospel. And Paul is so adamant about this issue because he wants to say that salvation cannot be earned by what you do. It is a gift to be received and believed. And Paul wants us as modern readers to examine any and all the ways that we present ourselves as good and morally upright people based on our works and the things we do. In my short time here at Grace, I've talked to some of you who've been considering giving your life to Jesus in baptism for the first time. Others of you have strayed from the faith for, for years and you're now thinking of recommitting your life to God. 
I found it fascinating that almost all the people I've talked to uh, believe sincerely, deep down, in some way, shape, or form, that they have to clean up their life and become a different kind of person before they are worthy to come before God and before God will accept them. That's a different kind of circumcision. Some of you work in the toughest, most cutthroat environments, and you have to do everything you can to get ahead. You sacrifice personal time, relationships, health, and you can't imagine coming to a God whom his impression and his, you didn't have to earn his love. You didn't have to earn your standing or your reputation. You've done everything you can in your workplace. That's circumcision thinking. Some of you can't stand Christianity because the thought of salvation by faith alone seems almost like a get-out-of-free-jail card. How is it possible that the worst people of society, the murderers, the rapists, the traffickers, can just repent of their sins, give their lives to Jesus in this life, and then be freed from eternal punishment? What about the good people? Don't their works make them good? That's circumcision thinking. Do you know why Christianity is so offensive to people? It's because every person intrinsically believes that he or she is the hero of their own lives. It's because in an age where people believe that you have the power to think positive, change your life, and be your best self, the gospel says that you are utterly helpless. Come to God. The gospel is such that your good works by themselves don't impress God, but neither do your bad works put you out of his reach. It's not the quality or quantity of your deeds that make you right with God. But Paul here says that because of what Jesus has done, we can be uh, free from justifying ourselves by our works and what we do. We are freed from the consequences of our not living up to God's holy standard because we don't. And we're free from a life severed from God. You are freed from having to earn your salvation by what you do. And he says, know what you've been freed from and stand firm in it. Know what you're freed by. Paul writes that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God's people are radically freed from slavery to sin and are made acceptable to God through believing in what Jesus has done. In verse 5, he adds that our participation in this freedom is through the Spirit and by faith. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, how can he make such a claim? Well, have you already seen how outward circumcision alone never made a difference to God? Circumcision was always a matter of the heart. And the scriptures, particularly Deuteronomy 10, speak metaphorically about how the, the covering of the, or foreskin of our hearts has to be removed for us to be right with God. It speaks of this surgical procedure that needs to happen in the human heart in order for us to make us right with God. But the problem we've been seeing is that our works uh, by themselves are powerless to make us right with God. Our works can't fix our relationship with God, and neither can they fix us. As human beings, we need an act of God just to compel us to want God. And in Deuteronomy 30, we have an astonishing promise from God that he will do just that. Hear these words from Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Isn't that amazing? See, the reason circumcision counts for nothing is because the thing that circumcision represented is right now being fulfilled by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
through the work of the Spirit and by faith in Jesus, the hearts of believers are circumcised in such a way that we are actually changed to believe God, delight in Him, and work out our faith through His love. Verse 6. And this is important because in the history of the Bible, no Jew ever circumcised himself. Circumcision was understood as an act that was done to you, not by you. And all this was helped to, men, uh, to help the believer understand that, uh, that it wasn't your merits or anything that you did for yourself or to yourself that earned your salvation or standing. A believer is always reliant on God. And this is why Paul can't stand this group of Judaizers. They are forcing the Galatians into spiritual slavery, verse 1. They are hindering the Galatians from obeying the truth, verse 7. They are leading the Galatians away from God who called them in the first place. Verse 8, and their message is even spreading, like leaven working its way through dough. And it's here that Paul has some really harsh words for them. He says, these people are teaching circumcision. Oh, why stop there? They should just emasculate themselves. He's a fiery preacher. And we might say, whoa, 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 Paul, Paul, what happened to the gospel of faith working through love? But in Paul's mind, this, this, this false message is not just bad advice. It's completely contrary to the real gospel. And Paul goes as far to say that the preaching of circumcision that your works for you actually makes the cross seem offensive. Understand that everything in our culture is wired to make you think that we are what we are because of our performance, because we have earned it or because we deserve it. We say things like, that man's homeless because he made the wrong life decisions. That woman's successful because she worked her way to the top. That person is single because they just don't try hard enough. Our society is a works-based culture conditioned on earning and deserving everything. And in fact, the moment we're confronted with something free, we automatically assume that it's fake, it doesn't work, or it must not be worth my time. And the gospel shatters this reality. Paul wants you to know that the gospel is real, it works, and it's worth your very life. Business Insider ran an article two years ago by a successful entrepreneur named Ramit Sethi who specializes in information products. Ramit writes in this article, I was raised in a culture where you help everyone you can for free, and you don't expect anything in return. I wanted to help, but I wasn't concerned, I wasn't concerned about capturing all the revenue. He says, I gave people a $2,000 course for free, and nobody took it. After a while, I started to feel a little resentful. This is my business. This is what I do. And they're not even taking me seriously. In the end, I gave up. I decided to offer my regular business, but charge even more. And people bought it. He concludes, it made me realize I was overlooking a crucial part about how people view money. People value what they pay for. People value what they pay for. Isn't that interesting? This man realized that people don't often value free things. Deep down, there's a human compulsion that says, if I pay it, if I earn it, if I've deserved it, it must have value. If it's free, it must be cheap. And Paul says, look, this gospel is offered to you by faith without a price, but that does not mean that it came without a cost. It has infinite value. 
If you can believe it, salvation and good standing with God is free by faith alone. The gospel says that we neither earn God's acceptance nor do we deserve it, but by faith in Christ we are saved. You are not freed by anything you do or have done, but by the work of the Spirit in your life enabling you to believe. I think this is why in verse 5 Paul says that we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We are people waiting for the outcome of our faith to be revealed to the world. When you wait for something, there's a passive quality there that silences your disposition to do and heightens your disposition to believe and anticipate. When you know something good is coming, it allows you to stay the course and be firm. If you don't know something good is coming, it's difficult to keep going. When I was dating my girlfriend and our wife long distance several years ago, we would literally be counting the days until one of us would visit next. In fact, I think it was only about three hours after we began long distance. I I was so miserable that I actually began planning our wedding (laughs) and shopping for engagement rings. See, although I couldn't do anything to bridge our relationship because of our circumstances, I could stand firm the knowledge that I was not waiting in vain. And when I did propose to her, I did because I wanted to, and I was free to, not because I had to. Buying her an engagement ring did not secure her love for me, but helped me express my love to her. So it is with faith and works. We are freed by faith through the Spirit, enabling us to wait and work through love. Know what you have been freed by and stand for a minute. Know what you are freed for. Now, we spent a lot of time over the last several weeks talking about it. It's faith, it's faith, it's faith, not works that save you. And Paul has been hammering that each week. And I would imagine that at this point in your, the series, most of you are like, okay, like, does anything I do even matter anymore? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, 100% yes. It's not that Paul doesn't think that works and things you do are important, but they have their proper place. Notice from this passage some things we are asked to do throughout this passage. Stand firm, verse 1. Eagerly wait, verse 5. Faith working through love, verse 7. Notice that when Paul criticizes the Galatians, he asks, who hindered you from obeying the truth? He might think he would ask, who hindered you from believing the truth? No, not at all. See, Paul knows that when a person believes the truth about Jesus, they are free to obey Jesus, not as a way to earn their approval or standing, but to express their love to him. Unless we think that God's law doesn't matter anymore because we are free, Paul is quick to say that love actually fulfills the law. You're no longer doing the things God desires of you because you have to, but because you actually want to. Love compels you. We are freed from the consequences of being unable to meet the requirements of God's law because Jesus did what the law required of us and took upon himself the consequences we deserved. God's law no longer pronounces a curse on us but is now a blessing to us to be enjoyed as it was intended to be. It was always given to us so that we might know how to love and serve God and others and now the gospel frees us to have a right relationship with God's law. I shared earlier what our culture has commonly said about freedom. It's things like this, liberating yourself from other people's expectations, being yourself, doing what your heart wants, living without limitations, rules, or consequences, and being happy in your own skin. I want you to notice the difference between the freedom of the culture that I just expressed 
and the freedom Paul outlines in verses 13 to 15. What do you notice there? Gospel freedom is not just about you. You see, real freedom enables a person to look beyond themselves to another. I want you to ask yourself, does my definition of freedom focus on me, my wants, and my needs? Because this is the radical difference between the freedom of the culture and the freedom of the gospel here. The gospel frees you to love and serve others, Paul says. Just think, how might we use our freedom to serve others? Who are the people you speak with at coffee time, go to lunch with? Are they always the same people? If you're single, do you spend any time with families or get to know their kids? Families, do you open your homes to those who are single or try to shepherd young couples? Students, do you know anyone in the 50-plus group at our church? Might you serve them somehow? Grace Toronto, we are a big church, and we must work hard to be a charitable and hospitable and loving place for people. What if the 300-plus official members of our church organically committed together to be the Connections team? It would take no more than every person, every member, meeting just one new person a week. Welcome someone. Get to know people you've never met or who seem different from you. Who do you pray for during the week? Do you know what the people in your small group or DG are actually going through? Do you ask them? Do you remember your pastors and encourage them? Do you pray for your elders and deacons? Do you pray for the good of your family, your friends, your coworkers? How do you use your time? Are you involved in the care of your city? Do you prioritize your marriage? Do you make time for your kids? How do you spend your money now, especially at Christmas? There are some amazing opportunities and organizations to partner with in your bulletin at this moment who desperately need your help and care. If you just want to bake some goods to raise funds to support families in crisis next week, there's an opportunity to do that too. It's a really easy thing. See, the gospel frees us to love and serve others. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, there is a way for you to come away from this passage wanting to be more loving and wanting to serve other people better. And let me just say that's a wonderful thing. I'm deeply grateful that we live in a culture that can look at some of the teachings of the Bible and say, wow, that's good stuff. We need more of that in our world. But let me encourage you. The Bible is not just a book of good teachings and platitudes to make life better for you and for others. It has many of those things, but its principal focus is to tell you the truth about yourself, to show you your need for God, and to show you that you can live in this kind of freedom. Wouldn't that be something? The Bible is not a list of rules to help you modify your behavior and become a better person. In fact, if you treat it like that, the way the culture often does, you can fall into the trap of relying on your own works and ability just like these people were tempted to do. Undoubtedly, many of you find yourselves agreeing with this biblical truth that all of us should love each other as we love ourselves. I see many of you, though you're not Christian, regularly try to live by this principle that you should do to others as you would have them do to you. Let me encourage you to commit to exploring the source of that truth that you try to practice by your own efforts. If the Bible is right about these things, what else might be true? 
Now, Paul also cautions us in this passage from using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, verse 13. And he's going to get more into that next week. For now, it seems like there's a way that one might misuse this freedom for selfishness and self-centeredness. And this is why Paul directs the Galatians to use their freedom, not for themselves and their own gain, but to love and serve others. And this theme of freedom has come up in two previous chapters of Paul's letters. And what he's been saying is that God has freed you to be what? A son, an heir, a child of God. This is the context of your freedom and the context of how you ought to now work and serve. Parents, do you free your child to do anything and everything that they would like to do? No. Please don't. I work downstairs. (laughs) But you free them and teach them to do the things that are beneficial and helpful to their good and the good of others. Let me illustrate this by way of example. I remember several years ago when I was first granted my Canadian work permit. I had finished my undergrad and I was excited to use my education and put it to good use with work. And I I took a trip. I had to cross the border and go to the United States and come back into Canada and meet a Canadian border official. And when I was presented with my Canadian work permit, the border official read me a list of rights and freedoms that my permit allowed. So he went through a number of freedoms, and then he continued. He said, sir, it's important you understand that this work permit is not valid for employment in businesses related to the sex trade, such as strip clubs, massage parlors, or escort services. (laughs) I looked at him completely shocked. (laughs) I didn't know whether to be offended or flattered that he thought I could do that work. (laughs) So I just nodded. I learned only later that this language actually appears in everyone's work permit. It's actually pretty standard. (laughs) I didn't know that at the time. But it got me thinking. It's fascinating that even the Canadian government knows that there's some work that is not helpful for the flourishing of our society. And even within the freedoms that I was granted, there were some exceptions. There were some warnings. Now, do you think I argued and said, now, wait, wait, wait a minute, officer. I thought I was free to work in any way I choose. No. No. See, the work permit gave me a legal status that freed me to work faithfully and diligently. It would be a ridiculous thing if I began working in the hopes of earning my legal status. Everyone that knows that's, not impos- that's, not, that's impossible. It's completely backwards. It's actually illegal. Rather, my legal status preceded any work that I did. I couldn't work to earn the government's approval. But once I was approved, I could work in the most free way possible. In fact, it was my legal status that conditioned my ability and my joy to work. When we believe what Jesus has done, our sins are forgiven, we are given a legal status as people who are righteous and free. But the gospel says we're not just free to do whatever we can possibly do. That's not freedom. When God's spirit gets a hold of our lives, we are finally freed and able to do the things we ought to do not because for the first time in our lives, we actually want the things that God knows are good for us because he made us and we belong to him. And the world will actually sit up and take notice. There's this true story told about a very large church in Birmingham, Alabama, who received the word one Sunday and learned about God's love for children and orphans. And they knew that because of what Jesus has done, they were free to do good work. In response, the pastor called up the Department of Human Resources in Shelby County, where the church is located, and asked, how many families would you need in order to take care of all the foster and adoption needs that we have in our county? The woman on the phone laughed. 
He said, no, really. If a miracle were to take place, how many families would be sufficient to cover all the different needs that you have? She replied, it would be a miracle if we had 150 more families. He took that back to the church, and they prayed over it together. I kid you not, God raised up over 160 families to help with the foster care and adoption needs of this program. They fostered every single child in the county system and gave them a loving family. These families came together and they said, we don't want even one child in our county to be without a loving home. It's not the way of the American dream. It's not the way of the gospel. News reporters interviewed the county foster care organization about what happened, and these secular HR reps who had never set foot in a church before said, we've never seen anything like this. We didn't know the church cared about these children. Imagine that. Friends, the gospel has freed you from being a slave, but it has not freed you to be a robot. The gospel frees you to be more you than you've ever had the capacity or potential to be by your own efforts because it frees you to be the way God made you. And when you take that freedom seriously, the freedom that you have in Christ by salvation, by faith, it enables you to help love, serve, and even free others. Friends, may you this week, this week, may you lay claim and stand firm in this freedom. Knowing what you are freed from, knowing what you are freed by, and knowing what you are freed for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this freedom that you have procured on our behalf. Although our works and our efforts can't do anything to draw us closer to you and make us better people, you did what we were unable to do by sending your Son, Jesus. Lord, wherever we are in our journey of faith, we pray that you would enlighten our minds to the knowledge of Christ that you would convince us of our sin and you would draw us to yourself. Free us to do good work, we pray, to change your world and to glorify you in all that we do. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Well, after a sermon like that, um, we're left with a sense, I think, of um, of the high calling that we have in the gospel, um, uh, what we're called to be and to do in light of the good news, uh, and yet are at the same time reminded that, that this is not going to happen by us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, as it were, um, but by proclaiming and hearing again the good news of God that so moves us to be this kind of people. And that's exactly what the Lord's table is all about. And so we end here each week with this proclamation, this sign of what God has done which moves us out into the world in a way that causes us to live in response to this great love with which we're loved. Uh, um, one of the, the a passages that came to mind uh, as Tarek was preaching was um, uh, 
Uh, he who is forgiven little loves little. Uh, he who is forgiven much loves much. And the idea here is, is that if we want to be a, the kind of people who go out into the world who love much and who are moved to love much, we cannot do that without being a people who know the depth of the forgiveness, the grace of God in our lives. And so with that, we move to the Lord's table. And this table, of course, is a picture of the gospel. Christ, on the night that he was to be betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken and given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And a little later, in much the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the cup of a new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And of course, this meal for us is a proclamation of God in the flesh, his own body broken for us, his blood poured out for us that we might feed on him and live. The way this happens here, all of the bread that will be passed around is gluten-free. There's wine, which is red. The grape juice isn't. And we invite all baptized believers to participate in this meal and to feed on Christ. I'll pray, and the table will be open. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for this inbreaking of grace to us, for us. And we ask that you would commune with us now and that we would be nourished on the grace that's ours through Christ by faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.